good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 9 is where we are going to be. We're going to continue our trek through this wonderful section of Scripture, one that is perhaps more disparaged than almost any section of Scripture in the entirety of both the New and the Old Testament. But we do not come disparaging. We come rejoicing. We come bowing underneath the authority of the all-inspired Word of God. But even more so than that, we come bowing under the authority of the God who inspired it. We must never misrepresent him. Instead, we must see him as he is clearly revealed in the scriptures and we must come with wonder. Now, I come confessing to you that as we approach the topic at hand, we've, gave, we've given introduction so far to this that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and God will harden whom he wills. As a matter of fact, as we've made our way through this section of scripture, it's pretty clear that we have seen the sovereignty of God in all things. And I think quite explicitly in regard to salvation, in regard to what God does with his own right to save who and when he wants. But today we have perhaps one of the most debated sections, even in the midst of our own camp, who would rejoice in everything that we have laid out because there are some, some language here that I think perhaps prods the conscience. And it prods the conscience, not because we would look at it and say, well, God then is unjust, but I think it prods the natural man's conscience. And, and I think that if we were all to be honest with ourselves, we perhaps have some of that natural man's conscience left, that it kind of has some residual life and Lord willing, by God's grace through the scriptures, it will be slowly put to death. And I think perhaps here, more so than almost anywhere else in the scriptures, that natural man's conscience, his boasting, his pride is absolutely debased. We are cast as low as we can possibly be cast in this particular set, section of scripture. But here's what I think is so important. If we understand this section of scripture, then we are not angry or frustrated by the reality that we have just been laid in the dust. As a matter of fact, it is the natural inclination of the Christian to be glad in the dust, to understand his position, to understand that he has no right, no authority, that he never can traipse into the throne room of God and question him. But we are, for all intents and purposes, often accusatory of our God. Now, perhaps it is that you would never accuse him in regard to salvation. Perhaps it is that you would reserve that for something else, maybe something rather specific that has occurred in your life. And you would say, but why, God, have you done this? Is there justice? And brothers and sisters, if we can apprehend this section of Scripture appropriately, then never again will we traipse into the throne room of grace and ask him, accuse him of injustice. Instead, we will understand our position, our, if I may, ignorance before him, and we will gladly submit to his rule and authority, and we will say, I know nothing. I cannot understand nor search the mind of God, and I will not pretend to, and I most certainly will not walk into the throne room of grace laying accusations at the king of glory. And so with that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Romans chapter 9, we'll read verses 6 through 
23. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 6, says this, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of glory, vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Let's pray together. Father, we come pleading for aid. Lord, there is so much in this that assaults our pride, and we will not pretend that there not be remnants of that left in us. But Lord, may we be people that delight to see it slayed. Lord, would you help us to approach this, to stand in awe of your right, of your godhood, as it were. Lord, should we reject this, should we throw it away, then we would have to say that we have thrown away God altogether. Lord, he is the reigning one, sovereign, supreme, does as he pleases and always does what is right. And so, Father, would you help us to understand our position before you? Would you allow us to be placed in the dust to such a degree that we might come up singing at the exaltation of Christ? And so, Father, we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, and it's in his name and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, what I hope to do is to walk us through, really, verses 19 through 23. I'm going to withhold 24 because we'll spend a whole week working through that. But as we approach this particular section of Scripture, it is jarring as an introduction. As we've worked through everything so far in Romans 9, we've essentially concluded in verse 18, well, really the two major premises that are set forth is in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And then secondly, it is in verse 18, where it says this simple phrase, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. The two major premises that have been laid out so far and Paul has, I think, quite adequately defended them. But I think the natural conclusion of verse 18 is uh, an assault upon the human's pride. Now, the reason I would say that such an assault on the human pride is because I think the connection between verse 18 and verse 19 is actually an appropriate understanding of the doctrines that Paul has laid out. I do not think that Paul's invisible accuser here has misunderstood his argument. 
I do not think that at all. Instead, if you look at verse 19, it seems as though he has grasped it quite clear. The issue is not in his understanding. The issue is in his acceptance. Because if you look at verse 18, it is as clear as it can abundantly be. I mean, if you read back up, you can see argument after argument made. God hardens whom he hardens. God has mercy on him. He has mercy. He has compassion on him. He has compassion. This is not based upon human will or exertion. It is simply based upon God's mercy, his giving of salvation as he pleases. And he has every right to do this. And that's the argument that Paul essentially makes. And then Because this accuser apprehends this truth, he then comes back, as I think we often do, as we apprehend new realities of God, and we begin to push back and perhaps make accusations. And the accusation that he makes is very similar to the previous accusation in verse 14, where it says, is there injustice on God's part? As a matter of fact, if you pay close attention, it actually is rather the exact same charge, just with different language. So can I read those accusations to you for a moment? The very first one is this. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? And the premise here is if God hardens him, he hardens, and he has mercy on whom he has mercy, how then can he find fault with the one who he's hardened? Or how then can he find fault even with the one who he has mercy? If he's decreed, if he's laid this out for us in one of two camps, how then can God find fault in an individual? That's the accusation that's made. And as that accusation is made, it's quite clear then that the next section, as he's considering this, why does he still find fault? Because who can resist his will? Who can resist his will? If he hardens whom he hardens and he has mercy on whom he has mercy, who then can resist his hardening or the mercy that comes to them for salvation? And there is an assumption in our understanding of these two questions. The very first thing here is that why does he still find fault? I think the rather simple phrase is because there's still fault. We are so quick to assume that there be enmity between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The scripture makes no assessment of that. Instead, it's quite clear that both of those realities are incredibly true. God is sovereign and man is responsible. God still finds fault in the creature because we still have fault. You see, the assumption here is that If God hardens whom he hardens and has mercy on whom he has mercy, then who can resist his will? And if no one can resist his will, then how can he still find fault? What is this man doing? He's doing the very same thing that Adam did in Genesis 3. It's rather common to man. How often is it that we hear things, why God did you do this? Why have you made me this way? Genesis chapter three, verse 12, shortly after the fall of Adam and Eve, I want you to hear the language of Adam. Because it is the same, maybe different phrasing, but the same argument is being made. Romans chapter three, verse 12. Listen to this. The woman who you gave to be with me. You see, there's an assumption in Genesis that the very first thing that Adam tries to do is place blame upon the woman. That is actually not the case at all. The very first individual that Adam tries to place the blame that he is rightly guilty for, justly guilty for, is not upon the woman. It's upon God who gave the woman to him. And it is so interesting to me that throughout all of human history, there has been a reaction against God's justice, against God's throne. And our response is, ah, but this is on you. This is on you. Do you know what the scripture perhaps more clear than anything else other than the Godhood of God itself is God's moral perfection. I want you to consider for a moment what we do when we say there is no fault in us. Do you know where we place that? We lay it at the feet of the holy, just King of glory. That's the only other place it can be laid. 
And our natural inclination, as is the inclination of this accuser, is to look at the God of infinite glory and say, you, you still find fault, yet no one can resist your will, so therefore, you must be the guilty party. It's the very same question. It's the very same question. We jump back up to verse 14. Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul has already answered it rather dogmatically, shouting, if you will, by no means. But I want you to see something here. Paul does not, by any stretch of the imagination, discredit the two premises that are laid out. It is quite clear in the scriptures, as we have already elaborated on working through Romans 9, that God does still find fault. The omniscient God of glory looks into the creature and do you know what he finds in the creature? Fault, sin, guilt, depravity, wickedness. And all of that is actually the responsibility of not God, but the creature. And here we stand looking at him and saying, well, the fault can't be on me. It must be on you. And so we ask the question, is there injustice on God's part? And as this question comes, why then or how then does he still find fault? The presupposition is that he does still find fault. And Paul says, absolutely, God still finds fault. But then the next section, this next question that comes is not only how then can he find fault, but secondly, for who can resist his will? And in the very same way, Paul does not combat the presupposition. Paul does not look at the question for who can resist his will and then go and give ways in which one can resist the will of God. Because here's the conclusion. No one can resist the will of God. These two things are not at enmity with one another. The accuser comes in his, hear me, arrogance and ignorance to assault the throne room of grace and says, if these two things are true, then by my, how can I say this gently? Mm, Not that one. By my feeble, finite assessment, you must be unjust. Because our feeble, frail, cockroach brains cannot grasp how these two things are harmonious, we then look at the God of infinite wisdom and say, it therefore cannot be harmonious. Have you thought of the arrogance of that? You look at God and say, because I can't get it, you can't have it. Our ability to grasp the infinite does not negate the truth of the infinite. You will not ever, hear me saying, you will never apprehend the fullness of God. You can know him truly, as one great theologian said, but you will never know him fully. And if I could make a quick aside, praise be to God for that, because heaven will be rich with reward of knowing him more and more every single day. And so we come, we hear these assessments, and just to kind of simply lay it out, Paul leaves both questions unaddressed and with the assumed answers in place. Does God still find fault? Yes. Who can resist his will? No one. And he leaves it. Now, if we were writing this, perhaps if a theologian sat down and thought to himself, well, I want to give a defense of this, he would begin to write a dissertation in the ways that it is just for God to still find fault and at the very same time for no one to be able to resist his will. That is not what the Spirit inspires here. He does not inspire an apology. He does not inspire a defense. Instead, he instantly, instantly looks back at the creature And this should be our response. As a matter of fact, I fought so hard. I was like, I want to give a defense for this. And the scripture just stopped me in my tracks because I don't get to do that. 
I don't get to look into the ineffable God, transcendent as he is, and make an argument that he has not made. It is quite clear that these two things are harmonious in every capacity. And then instead of him giving a defense of these two wonderful truths, he looks back at the creature and he says this. And so if you're here and you're questioning the justice of God and holding men accountable for their trespass, their guilt, their fault, and at the very same time seeing his sovereignty to harden whom he hardens and have mercy on whom he has mercy, here's God's answer for you in the midst of your charge of injustice. Who are you, O man? That's the defense. It's flawless. Press on. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And then he as we've mentioned already, lays us in the dust and calls us pottery. What does he say? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? But let's start, shall we, at this first accusation. But who are you, O man? Turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 38. We're going to look at 38, 40, and 42. Job is perhaps the most precise place for us to go to have this question asked and responded to not by a man, but instead responded to by God himself. It is an incredible moment where God would stoop down to this, hear me, we read the book of Job and oftentimes we sympathize with him and we talk about, oh, well, we need to have the patience of Job. Brothers and sisters, what we need to have is what Job had on the other end of his rebuke, which is humility before God. And Job, in the midst of his griping and saying, I'm righteous, I'm righteous, you deserve, I deserve all of these things. But at the very same time, having mixtures of true statements in, he then, after all of this questioning, the Lord then answers Job. And I want you to hear what he says to him. This is chapter 38, verses two and three. And I wanna read just a little bit of four through seven as well. This is God's response when man questions him. It's hilarious. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's the nicest way God has ever called someone ignorant. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. So he says, O transcendent Job, who knows everything, let me ask you a few questions then, shall we? And this is what he says. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? On, or where is its cornerstone laid? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or here, how about this? Who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said thus far, shall you come and no further. And there and here shall your proud waves be stayed. And not only here are the proud waves of the ocean stayed, but so are the proud waves of man's pride. We don't have an answer. Tell me, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? If you could just give me a, a brief assessment. Tell me, where did I lay them? And where's its cornerstone? And can you explain to me why it is that the ocean ceases it stops, it's proud waves come to an end where I have called them to stop. But you know what's interesting about this? This is our immediate text that we go to and we think about this, but it actually goes a bit further because if you look at chapter 40, there is this verse, really chapter 40, verse two. And then this is where I think we all sit because I don't wanna, I mean, I think that probably all of us would say, oh, I'm, I'm ignorant altogether. 
of where the, when the foundations of the earth were laid. I do not understand why you have told the ocean to come this far and no further, and the ocean listens to you. But here is perhaps where I think we might find ourselves. The Lord looks back at Job, continuing his questioning in, verse, in chapter 40. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Going further, then Job said, Behold, I am of small account, and what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. God's rebuke when someone like us, a creature infinitely lower than the God of creation, walks in and accuses him, is do you know who you are? Do you understand your position? Do you know that I made you from dust? Do you know that the breath that you breathe is upheld by the word of my power? The very atoms in your being are staying where they are because I have commanded them such. And yet here we are. And we're accusing him of injustice. The folly of this is absurd. But then the Lord challenges Job. And here's where we should all find ourselves. And I think if there's ever a moment where man is laid in the dust, aside from creation, clearly indicating that we are literally created from dust, is God responding to Job in this way. Again, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even, because this is where we are, put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? How natural is it for man to do this? How natural is it for us to go on justifying ourselves aside from the ways that God has set out to justify? We would do everything we can to excuse ourselves before the Almighty God, and we would look at Him and say, You then must be at fault. The rebuke is not an elaboration upon the ways in which God's sovereignty and human responsibility meet, the response is, God is God and you are not. Now, for many, that is an unsatisfactory answer. If that is an unsatisfactory answer for you, I have no answer for you. Because the reality is God's claim, God's being of Godhood is an actual claim to Godhood. We assume that his Godhood is like just a bigger, better version of man in which there might be fault to find. Or we assume that he is like this feeble and frail individual who must work and must consider everything that we assess to be justice in his actual execution of justice. No, dear saint, his justice is a perfect execution of justice because he is justice in and of himself. And so what does he do? He looks at us and he says, who are you, O oh man? And we, if we have any sense about us, say, I have darkened counsel without knowledge. And we look at him, we repent of our trespass, of questioning his character and nature, and we gladly say, God is God and I am not. But he goes further, and I think perhaps as he goes further, he places an illustration out, and this is the illustration that will carry us forward. He goes on in verse 20, Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? This is the distinction laid out. 
And if there's one thing that we need to reclaim, it's this distinction. There is a distinction between the creation and the creator. This distinction is so incredibly paramount. If we mess this up, if we ever look at the creator as if he is creation, then we really are not ever going to find our bearings in the world. And if we ever assume that we are as valuable or we have as much authority as the creator, then we are going to find ourselves in all types of strife with no pillow on which to rest our head. Instead, what he does is he lays out this concept, will what is molded, that being us. We are what is molded. We are what is malleable. God is not malleable. He does not change in any shape, form, or fashions. His hands are resolved and he molds with perfection and he molds us. And as we see the creator molding the creation, the molder does not get to respond and ask questions, why have you made me like this? Now, I think first and foremost, we could look at this from the salvific standpoint, especially considering our context. We do not look, get to look back at God as what is molded and say, well, you have hardened. Therefore, I'm going to answer back to you and say, well, this is on you then. Or perhaps even a bit more deeply, should we broadly apply this concept? We don't look to God as what is molded and say, why have you made me like this in any capacity? God has molded every single individual for his intended end of his own glory. We do not look back at him and say, well, I'm really upset that you made me like this. That too is an assault upon his godhood and his sovereignty. Perhaps it is that you are frustrated with your physical state or emotional state or whatever it may be, but here's the reality. God has placed you in this position to his glory. Bow to his authority. And as we come, here you have... A great illustration laid out both in the text we read in Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 49, 9. Isaiah 29, 16. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? Never. That the thing made, listen to this folly, should say of its maker, he did not make me. To deny that the creator is just that, the creator? That which is molded. Let's consider this. You're walking around a pottery store and the pottery starts to talk back to the guy who made it and says, you didn't make me. And the guy says, you don't, you're not here if I didn't make you. And the authority in just this simple interaction illustration, how much higher is the mind of the creator, in this case of mere pottery, than the mind of the pottery? Do we even speak of such things, the mind and will of the pottery? No, but hear me. The mind of the infinite God is all the more transcendent to the mind of the creation, us, than the simple potter is above his pottery. He is so far transcendent. And then Isaiah 49, 9, he says this, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? And this is my favorite line, or your work has no handles. Now consider that critique for a moment. The pot is upset that it didn't get a handle. And in the very same way, we would look to our God, be angry, frustrated, accuse Him of injustice instead of assuming that the potter, the creator, the sovereign of the universe gets to do what He wants and not only gets to do what He wants, but everything that He does want to do is good. And the only thing that animates our objection is our own fallen, feeble, sinful assessment of good and justice. We answer back to him. 
like fools. The potter does have right over the clay. The potter does what he chooses with the clay. And we do not, as the creatures or as in the illustration, the pottery, get to answer back to him and question the way that he conducts himself. Going forward, we see this kind of elaborated on a bit more, but here we see it played out as in what does he do with this clay? Romans 9.21, he has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. It's a rather simple statement, pretty much restating at least in part of what has previously been mentioned. Does the potter have right over the clay? Of course he does. He's the potter. Every individual knows this. When you walk into someone making pottery, the clay makes no demands and gives no authority or even critique in the way that the potter is conducting himself. If you walk into that, that's a strange sight. The pottery does not respond. It does not question or accuse. Why? Because the potter, the pottery actually understands that it is under the authority of the potter. He has absolute right over the clay. But this leads us into the argument that he makes in verses 22 through 23. Let's listen to this phrase. Has the potter no right over the clay? And this is where we'll pay attention. To make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. So does God have right over the clay? Absolutely. That means that he has right over the clay to do with whatever he wants with it. And he can even take the very same lump of clay and make from that same lump something for honorable use and something for dishonorable use. Now the question is, what's the lump? What's the lump? I mean, it's quite clear. I mean, he's paying close attention to this. Just read it again. To make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What is the lump? The lump is sinners. The lump is all of those men who have fallen in Adam. And he takes this lump. Just consider this lump for a moment. I think sometimes we read past this. God has taken the ugliest lump that has ever existed And he has chosen to use it for two purposes, to make from it one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Can I just pause for a moment here? If I'm taking the ugly clay, I'm making everything for dishonorable use. Because why? Because the clay is filthy, it's dirty. It should not be given over to honorable use. Instead, what we see in this particular section is that God takes from the wretched pile of sinners and then he, by his grace, chooses to make some for vessels of mercy, for honor, or at the very same time takes those by his justice and molds them into vessels of wrath. That's the illustration that we pay close attention to. And God has absolute right to take from the lump of sinners and make vessels of mercy or vessels of wrath. Or here, as he lays out, honorable use or dishonorable use. Now, this is perhaps where we would look at God and say, well, What then is your distinction? Why is it that you take some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use? And I will reach back unapologetically to verse 11 where it says that God's purpose of election might stand. He does as he chooses based upon his own purpose and will to the end of his glory. That's the way that we have spoken of that and that's the way that we will continue to speak of it. God makes for honorable use based upon election. God makes for dishonorable use based upon his justice. And here we pay close attention. Let's push forward into the text because he goes on to clarify this. And perhaps is what is the best what if in all of scripture. He leans in in the midst of this whole conversation and says, all right, what if, what if God 
desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, let's pause here a minute because we do not get to take the what if and assume that this is not reality, as many would do. I can't tell you the number of times that I've walked through this text and someone says, oh, that says what if, and they totally disregard everything that's mentioned as if it is not an authoritative argument from scripture, not to mention the fact that it concludes upon the establishment of the church, which we'll see next week. This is not a what if that is theoretical in nature. He is kneeling down to communicate to someone that God does what he wants for a particular end. And the end is wonderful and good based upon his goodness. And so what is that? Well, the first thing, and perhaps the one that we would quickly come to and perhaps begin to ask questions of God is this. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So the first question is, why does God make vessels for dishonorable use? We do not go past Scripture. It is clear. He has made this clear. What's the word that we find right after that what if? Desiring. What if God desiring to show his wrath? Let me ask you a question before we proceed. If God desires to make his wrath known, do we as the creature get to be angry that God desires to reveal himself? You see, this is actually the place where we would have all the qualms. Because we go forward and we deal with his mercy, taking from that wretched lump vessels of mercy, and not a single person brings any accusation against God. But what if God desiring to make his power known Brothers and sisters, we as the creature, we must, as Job did, cover our mouths. And I know, before we go further, I know that you, just like me, have beloved people, siblings, friends, family, who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that this perhaps is a verse that would cause you to trip up. May I offer you, perhaps, the slightest bit of comfort And if you delight in the glory of God, this will actually be comforting to you. If you do not, then I have nothing to offer you. But if you delight in the glory of God, then should they die in their sin, God is glorified in their death. And God is glorified in the execution of his justice, and we will make no apology for it. Because the scripture is clear. What did he do? He desired to show his wrath. Now, what does it mean that he desired to show his wrath? He desired to demonstrate his perfect justice. May I make perhaps one illustration here? We go back to the garden for a moment. We turn to Genesis and we see God's attributes displayed to some degree. But at the fall, we begin to see the attributes of God in a unique way, do we not? Do we not see God's justice all the more displayed? Do we not see even God's mercy all the more displayed? Do we not see his grace and his love and his compassion all the more displayed? God desired to make his wrath known. And in God's desiring to make his wrath known, he has prepared vessels of wrath. And so he desires to demonstrate his wrath. Not only does he desire to demonstrate his wrath, he desires to demonstrate his power and authority and dominion. And he desires to demonstrate all this. We'll give illustrations here in a moment. 
because he longs for this. I want you to read this because this is what we read past a lot as we read into Romans chapter 9. We read Romans 9, 22, so let's read it. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And we normally hard stop there, but let's proceed. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Why is it that you do not tremble at sin's authority and power? Because God has demonstrated his wrath and power over his foes. Why is it that you can be comforted that no enemy of God will stand against him? Because God's wrath and power have been made clearly known. Dear Saint, if you pay close attention to this text, the intended end is revelation of God's power and wrath to those who will never experience it. Vessels of mercy. Yet, we say we know it. We know his wrath. We know his power. We have seen it first and foremost on the cross of Christ when he drank the cup in full. But we also see his perfect, faithful justice and execution of his wrath and power against all of his enemies. And so we stand in all of our God who desire to make known wrath and power so that we might see it and be comforted by it. Now, how does God make vessels for dishonorable use? This is the big question of this section. The very first thing that we must see is that he has... You pay close attention, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. The very first attribute laid out here is actually the patience of God, his long suffering. Consider for a moment, God in his infinite grace in this very moment that we live in right now is permitting, forgive me, that is not a strong enough word, is feeding air into an individual who will never repent and believe the gospel and will go on spurning his name, not just here on earth, but throughout eternity. What level of patience is that? He gives them air so that they might exhale it in blasphemy. That's an expression of patience, of wonderful patience. And if we could just give a couple of illustrations for this, you think about the days of Noah. Noah takes all of this time to build the ark and all the while, what is God doing? He is long-suffering, and we do well to use that word. Patience is a bit weak. He is long-suffering. He is enduring their blasphemies and their enmity against him up until the point where God will ultimately execute said wrath. Or what about in the case of Canaan? We know that Canaan was given to Abraham before the Israelites possessed it. What was he waiting on? The iniquity of the Canaanites to be full. Patient. Or what a Pharaoh the illustration most prominent to this particular text. What of Pharaoh's years up until the point where God would crush him in the Red Sea? How is it that he made his way to that seat, that authority, that dominion, that power? How is it? It's only by God's patience that he made it to that position. Why? So that he might dis display his power and his wrath in him. Or going further, and perhaps it would be most wounding to the people of Israel, but in the case of unbelieving Israel in the wilderness, God delivered them from Egypt. All the while they are continuing to be blasphemers of God. Do you pay attention to the arguments that take place in the wilderness? How often is it the Israelites are waging war against the God who delivered them, even to the point where they're frustrated about the taste of the food? And God is patient. They will not enter into the land of rest 
They are, as it were, I think safe to say, vessels of wrath. And then we pay close attention to those of our day. God is patient. And perhaps just a moment, if you find yourself here today and you have not repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the only reason that you have not ceased to be is because God is patient with you. And praise be to God for his patience because it is his patience that got us safely to conversion if you be a Christian. Then finally... He endures with long suffering, but then secondly, if you go on in this text, he has endured with much patience, vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction. Now this word, I think, not inappropriately is it translated prepared, but it is a distinct word. It is not the same word that you find in the next section of scripture when it says prepared beforehand for glory. As a matter of fact, this particular word actually has more to do with being ready and complete. The way that I illustrate it often is I think about all the things that take place on a wedding day for a bride to make herself ready to make her way down the aisle. There's a number of things that must occur until she reaches the point where she is confident, hopefully, to walk down the aisle to a particular man. She has made herself ready. In a very similar sense, what we find here is that they are prepared for destruction. They are made ready for destruction, meaning that God's justice is perfectly executed when he exercises his purpose of destruction. Now, let me give you three ways that I see this take place. First, they are prepared for destruction by Adam's fall. Every single individual, apart from God's intervention, is prepared for destruction by Adam's fall. When Adam fell, you failed. Sin and death had absolute authority over you. You were, in a sense, prepared for destruction. Or even going further, by their own sinning, by their own multiplying of their own trespass and iniquity. Romans chapter 2 verse 5 says this, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. They go on sinning. They go on waging war against the holy God by their rebellion against his authority and dominion and power. They sin and multiply their sinning as it were. And God's righteous judgment will be revealed as they store up wrath for themselves. Then finally, as pertaining to our text, and we must not exclude by God's hardening. God does. You, you read through this text, there is no way to excuse this. There is no way for us to read through this and then take out God's hardening. Paul has inserted it. Paul has made it abundantly clear that we are prepared for destruction by Adam's fall, by our sinning, and by God's hardening of men's heart. I would say, first and foremost, in regard to judicial abandonment that we read, we, we read about in Romans 1. Now, to conclude, what does prepared mean? It means this, they are filled with that which brings destruction. One could even say they are complete for destruction. Now, that means that God does find fault. And not only does God find fault, he demonstrates his wrath and power by, notice what it says, prepared for destruction. How does God vindicate, make clear his power and wrath? He justly exercises his wrath against those who have prepared themselves for it. He is executing destruction on his enemies. Now, this is where we look and we think, wow, dear saint, we hold to this doctrine. We hold to it unabashedly. I, I am convinced that should you rid yourself of the doctrines that are laid out in Romans 9, then we must quickly rid ourselves first of hell and then of God's justice altogether. Because to say 
that they are prepared for destruction and then destruction not come is either an exercise of grace or injustice. God has no injustice. He executes it with perfection. And so as one hardens their heart, as they store up wrath for themselves, it is no surprise when the judge of all the earth that will do what is right actually executes said justice. To say anything else here is to go back up to to Romans 9.14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And we must say, yes. But we do not negate the clear authority of Scripture. God's justice is perfect. So what has he done? God has set aside vessels of dishonor. We see that he has demonstrated his power and authority by their destruction, and we must never apologize for such a thing. But that is not all that we see here. This is, by the way, the most natural response to a lump that is as wretched as the lump that God pulls from. Is it not vessels of dishonorable from the dishonorable clay? It makes perfect sense. What's actually so surprising, again, going even back up to verse 13, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. I have no surprise that Esau I hated. I am always shocked at Jacob I loved. In the very same sense, I'm actually surprised in reference to God's justice that there would be any vessels of mercy. Because this dishonorable love, this one, like just brief pause, do you know who you are? Like, have you done much self-examination? Have you thought about the things that actually pop into your mind? Have you realized how sinful you actually are? And then God in his infinite grace chooses, reaches into that lump and says, vessel of mercy for them. And I'm still flabbergasted by the reality that he would have mercy on me. Like any self-examination, if I'm looking at the lump and I'm considering my own little batch of clay inside of it, I'm thinking to myself, I'm the worst batch of clay in the lump. And if there's anyone here that deserves to be prepared for destruction, that's me. Or Paul would even say that he is the chief amongst sinners. He literally claims to be the worst. And then he goes on to say, well, why is it that I can stand here in the presence of God, even write the epistle of Romans? Because God has had mercy. Now let's read through this. So, How does God demonstrate his wrath and power? He does so by the destruction of the wicked. Going further, why does God make vessels for honorable use? Hear me, simple phrase, to show his mercy. To show his mercy. Now again, let's go back to the garden for just a moment. What is birthed immediately at Adam's sinning? What attribute is most clearly seen? You see God say, where are you? Then you see Adam begin to respond, heaping guilt up upon God for giving him a woman. And then, what does God do? Does he clothe them? Does he take the fig leaves off of them that's doing nothing, kill an animal, and then clothe them with the skins of these animals? What attributes are being clearly displayed in that wonderful act? Is it not God's mercy in withholding the death, the physical death of that day from them, and then lavishing on them a clothing that they themselves had no knowledge how to make? And he does this all born of his mercy. And hear me, if we do not see that we deserve justice, you will never hear me. If you do not understand that you deserve to be the vessel of dishonor created for destruction, then you will never, never rightly taste mercy. You will not do it. You will always think of mercy as something far lighter than it actually is, as if it was merited. 
It is not merited. It is lavishly given against men who have demerited it. And so he prepares vessels for honorable use. Why? To show forth his mercy. And if I could add, to have a house filled with vessels of mercy. I do not want to yank this section of scripture out of its context. What is being elaborated on here? How God builds his church. As a matter of fact, the next section goes on to say, even us whom he has called, not, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And what is it then that's in God's wonderful house? Vessels of mercy from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And God has taken them and made them vessels of mercy from this wicked lump of sinners. He demonstrates his mercy in preparing and electing men unto mercy. And then he gives his mercy and his compassion based upon his freedom. Now, how does God make vessels for honorable use? This is the great distinction of this passage. Notice what it says. Verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? Listen to this language. Which he prepared, again, a different word than the previous prepared, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Do you know what's rather interesting? Paul does not permit the reader to assume that there be any mutual preparation that takes place. It doesn't doesn't permit it at all. As a matter of fact, one of the great debates about this is, is the previous prepared, does it permit both the creature and the creator in the preparation? But here it is quite explicit. It's wonderfully explicit. There is no mutual preparation for glory. As a matter of fact, it is so precise that you see the active agent in this is God is acting to prepare, but then there is this wonderful prefix that pushes it back to beforehand. Now, where can we get any wisdom in regard to what took place beforehand? Ah, Romans 8. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Hear this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. How did he prepare beforehand? Based upon the purpose of election and then predestines the individual for glory, for mercy, for compassion. He takes from that lump of sinners. He elects them by his free grace, then prepares them beforehand for glory. There is no way, saint, for you to interrupt this process. You do not get to jump in and say, I have made some contribution to my preparation. No, God prepared it beforehand based upon his mercy. Now, what's the end? Just as the end of those who are prepared for destruction is their destruction, what is the end of those whom God has richly lavished his mercy upon? Glory. Now, I don't want to cite a whole podcast we did, but when we understand what it means to be prepared for glory, I think our whole perspective shifts. What is the distinction between those who go to destruction and those who go to glory? Is it not presence? Is the distinction not presence? Is glory not a revelation of his nature and attributes as we see in him displaying wrath and power, but more so than that, the wonder of being prepared for glory 
is that we will, based upon His mercy, enter in to the presence of our great God and King, hear me, not just in a future state, but now. Do you not have fellowship with God? If you do not have fellowship with God, then we have no business being here celebrating, as it were, fellowship with God corporately. Because God is merciful, because He chooses sinners from the wicked, wretched lump that He has already laid out for us of being in Adam, He brings them out, prepares them beforehand for glory, then executes all the work necessary for that mercy to rightly be applied, should I give a brief estimation here, through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way in which that God can be merciful and not violate His justice is based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. The reason that we can rightly enter into His presence, dare I say, it's the reason the veil was torn from top to bottom is because the ramification of Jesus' substitutionary death is what lavishes mercy on you so that you might rightly enter the presence of God and never leave. And never leave. Dear Saint, if you are a vessel of mercy, if you have repented and trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of sin, if He is your great delight and desire, then praise be to God. He delights and desires for you to have Him. Why? Because He has prepared vessels of mercy for glory. And he will not suffer one not to have the glory for which he prepared them. We have delved into wonderful mysteries. But the thing that I must say to conclude all of this is either way, because I know you've got two things running through your mind, Christian. You've got the lost who you love. And at the very same time, you have your own salvation, the mercy that you've tasted and seen and is good. And you're, and you're thinking, okay, how, how do I mesh these two things together? How do I deal with both the sorrow and unceasing anguish that Paul has in Romans 9, 1 through 5 and the joy of being a vessel of mercy? Hear me, the comfort for the Christian is that both of these ends is to the glory of God. That is our only comfort. That is our only boast is that God would be made much of, that His power and wrath are made known, His justice is clear. And at the very same time, we sit here underneath the wonderful mercy of grace, mercy and grace of God bought for us by the man Christ Jesus. Let's pray together.